You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, hey man, what a great time of worship this morning. And again, I'm so excited to be here with you and to uh, share God's word with you this morning. Go ahead and be turning to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Again, this is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And this morning we're going to be looking at the topic of true healing. Uh, the last time we were together, we looked at true belief and what that looks like. And, and this week we're going to look at true healing. And so uh, as we begin to think about this concept this morning, and as you're turning to John 5, I want to ask you a question of where do you turn for healing? For most of us, when we think of the idea of healing, most of us immediately go straight into the medical aspect and the medical mindset. Uh, We go to whatever hospital we go to. Uh, Most people I've recognized have a preference as far as what hospitals they go to. As a pastor, you learn that a lot. Uh, Because uh, everywhere that I've ever been, there are multiple hospitals, and you've got to figure out which one uh, each person goes to. And so when we think about where we turn for healing, sometimes it it becomes this idea of which doctors we trust and which medical professionals we trust. But for us as Christians, when when I talk about the idea of healing, there's more to it than just the medical idea. There's also the, the mental and the spiritual and the emotional. And so as we think about that question and we, we rephrase it and return it in order to think about it in that way, where do we turn for healing? The immediate reaction of most Christians is to say, well, we turn to Jesus. But the facts of the United States are that a majority of people, Christians included, turn very often to all other kinds of spiritual practices for healing. The United States is consumed with things like psychics, astrology, all kinds of pagan practices like rituals, uh, things we see within a New Age movement and superstitions. And I'm here today to tell you that we should not put hope in any of these things, and we certainly should not fear their power over us. As Christians, we need to recognize that we have a God that is higher than any name that is named. We have a God that is totally and completely sovereign over all creation. We have a God that is mighty to save and strong in power. We must look to him for true healing. But again, many believers, we fail in totally relying upon him. The statistics are staggering. And today what we're going to see in our text is we will see a religious guy, a Jew, someone who claims to believe in God and yet his hope is in a superstitious magical practice. His hope for healing falls outside of the gospel and the truth. And so what I want to do today is is, is for us to learn from this story about what true healing in Christ looks like. So let's look to John 5, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading in the ESV. You follow along in your translation. Beginning in verse 1, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, uh, sorry, blind, lame, And paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's go in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today, Lord, thankful for your mercy and your grace to us. Father, we come before you today hopeful. Lord, expectant. That as we look into your word, we will find more of your truth revealed to us. Father, knowing that as you reveal yourself more fully to us, that Lord, we may understand more of who you are and, and love you and serve you better. So Father, we ask for that today. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts and minds to understand. Father, we pray that you would encourage us and convict us, that you would strengthen us and equip us. Lord, we pray that your message would be spoken here today and that, Father, we would take this message and apply it to our lives. Lord, prepare us for what you have ahead of us. Lord, equip us that we might bear fruit. And Lord, shape us that we might please you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, at, at this point in the Gospel of John, you know, we've been making some headway. We're now in uh, the month of April, and so we have looked at the Gospel of John for three full months now, uh, and we are in chapter 5. And so to this point, we have seen uh, Jesus conversing and and having a great amount of teaching time in conversations. Uh, We saw it with John the Baptist and the disciples, and then we, we saw him even perform again miracles as well, transforming water to wine. We saw him talk with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And then last week we looked again at this concept of true belief through the contrast of the crowds of Galilean Jews who just wanted miracles and the noblemen who honored Christ as Lord. And we spoke about how it was that acknowledgement that Christ was Lord and it was by living by his word that characterizes true belief. And so again today we're looking at a story that teaches us about true healing. And this is a topic that is relevant to every one of us. We may come here this morning and say, well, I am in perfect health. If you are, amen. Congratulations. I am very happy for you. Most of us have some ailment that is bothering us in some way. What I've learned is that most people have at least one thing physically that is weighing them down. But even if you're here this morning and you're in perfect physical health, we need to recognize that each of us wants to be healed of something, whether it's that common thought of healing and it's, it's physical Or if it's the emotional that needs healing, or definitely the spiritual. I want to show you today five things about true healing 
and the concept of it and how it comes about. First of all, I want to show you the hopelessness of superstition. The hopelessness of superstition. We open our passage this morning with the introduction of the pool of Bethesda. This is a pool that's just outside the northern gate of the temple complex. And it's here that our story takes place, just outside the temple. Just outside the place where the Holy of Holies was, where the law is observed. And and just outside the place where the Jews were to worship God and learn from him. We see that there is this pool and there are these five porticos or porches or colonnades and they're all around it. It's beautifully adorned. And as we think about that, I mean, just imagine this beautiful pool and around it, these big, beautiful columns. And then in contrast to that, we see that there are multitudes of invalids. We have blind people. We have lame people. We have paralyzed As I imagine this scene, again, the contrast is staggering. Beautiful, ceremonial, right outside the glory of the temple. All of these hurting, sick people. And they're there, waiting, watching, and expecting. The question we need to ask ourselves is, why are all of these invalids gathered at this pool? The pool of Bethesda was considered a special place. Now, Bethesda, in, it says here it's in Aramaic. But in the Aramaic and Hebrew, what this means is Bethesda means house of covenantal love. What a name. The, the word bait meaning house and the word kesed meaning covenantal loyalty and love. It, it's, it's a beautiful name. A beautiful place. But there is a practice going on there in which more is happening than meets the eye. How many of you were observant this morning and noticed that as I was reading our passage, I didn't read verse 4? That surprised anybody as we were going through it. It was on purpose. I didn't forget it. I didn't pass over it on accident. But verse 4 is not found in the original manuscripts of John. Verse 4, it's not found there. And so many Bibles will, will not have verse 4 in them out of a, out of a, a respect and as a, out of a desire to keep the true word of God pure. But verse 4 tells us something interesting. What likely happened is that uh, even as the word is perfect and all of it is God's word, what we need to recognize is that sometimes there were places in here where someone would stick something in and verse 4 appears to be one of those. It appears to be the work of a historian later on who was explaining this practice. Because we see down uh, here later where he says he's waiting for the water to be stirred. I'm going to read from the New King James, which includes verse 4 in it. It says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, the person who's adding this into the manuscript, they added it in as background. This is why the people are there. They believed that an angel caused the pool to bubble and that it had healing properties. Now, the Bible never tells us that an angel did this. Jesus never mentions it, so it's almost certainly not true. The water probably did bubble, but this could be because it's fed by a reservoir and a spring. It could have easily been mineral water. 
I remember when I was a kid, uh, we used to take a trip over to the Pine Mountain in Warm Springs, uh, Georgia area. And we would see the little White House where uh, FDR conducted business as the president uh, because he would go down into the Warm Springs that had healing properties. The Romans later on would continue to try to use the pool of Bethesda as well because they thought that it had healing properties. This idea of going down into pools was a very common thing in the ancient world. They believed in these ceremonial baths where they would go in and they would be healed and they would be, have all of their sicknesses and things washed away. The fact that the Romans bought into this suggested that this was a big legend indeed. Legend, though, is all it was, especially to this man. We meet him, and the legend says that you have to be the first one in the pool after it starts bubbling. And the Bible tells us that he had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus asks the man if he wants to be healed, his only thought is that it could never happen because no one could get him in the pool fast enough. No one would put him in. He didn't have anybody to take him and drop him in the pool first. So the man here is enslaved to this this superstition, this legend. He sits there knowing that there is no way he'll be cured by the legend, but somehow only hoping in it. He knows that no one's going to put him in there. He's not, no matter how fast people move, someone's always going to be able to jump in before him. But yet, he still keeps sitting there. Only hoping in this legend. So much so that when Jesus, who had an amazing reputation for healings at this point, asked if he wants to be healed, the only thing that the man can think about is the pool. The thing of the matter is that superstitions and legends and all these other practices we put our hope in, they can never help us. They are hopeless. They always require just more than you're able to do. And what we see here is there's no way out. Not only is it hopeless, but furthermore, it is powerless to do anything. And the saddest part of all of this is that when believers put their hope in these things or fear these things, they are betraying a small view of God. Let's think about this in a, in a way that we can kind of understand this this morning. Again, we'll put it in terms of superstitious practice. If I drive across a black cat's path, what happens? If I walk under a ladder, break a mirror, spill the salt, or open an umbrella indoors, what is it? Bad luck. I'm going to share with you this morning that luck is not biblical. It, it denies God's providence and power. And furthermore, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is our God so small that his power and his plan is thwarted or stopped by a cat? If I can stop God's plan by breaking a mirror or opening an umbrella indoors, then he is not a God worth serving. If that's our view, then we don't worship the God of the Bible because the biblical God is big. And the God who is stopped by these things is no God at all. And this is what this man missed out on. He was a Jew. He had been at the temple. He had no doubt heard of the glory of God and the hope of the Messiah. And then when that very same Messiah is standing before him asking if he would like to be healed, he does not recognize the very God he claims to worship. Why? We have to ask, did he really worship the God or the legend? 
His focus was on a hopeless and powerless superstition, a legend. Don't miss out on the blessing and providence of God because you are worried about some superstition. The Bible even tells us in Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision that's from the Lord. It's talking about throwing dice. Our God is big and powerful and totally sovereign, meaning that he's in control. We don't have to fear superstitions, and we don't have to hope in them either. We have a God who is big and powerful and, and who loves us and who has a plan for our life, and so we can trust and hope in him and not in the legends of the world. We don't hope in things that are powerless, but we hope in a God that is all-powerful and holy, which is the idea behind our second point this morning. We see that there is a hopelessness for true healing in superstition. But secondly, I want you to see that there is hope in the sovereign Christ. Jesus has asked this man, do you want to be healed? The man goes on and on about the legend. Then we see that after this man continues his little whatever it is that he's saying, pity party maybe, uh, his laying out his beliefs, when he finishes this, this sentence, Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Much like Lazarus, Jesus here issues a command and things change. Just like last week, the change is immediate. Jesus is no longer asking. Right? He asked the man if he wanted to be healed, and, and the answer here is basically, it is impossible. It's impossible. I can't get put in the water fast enough. But Jesus is through asking and now issues a command, and the man is healed. If Jesus had waited until that man was ready, it would have never happened. The man was so focused on his sinful practices and his misplaced hope that he told God it was impossible. But thankfully, Jesus was in control and not that man. He issues the command, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed and walked text tells us that Jesus withdrew into the crowd. Here's the thing that we need to realize. This, so far here, is speaking about in terms of physical healing. I want you to know that, that for us, when we think about this in terms of spiritually and mentally and emotionally this morning, true healing is not found in the superstitious or supernatural things of this earth. It's found, again, in the sovereign Christ. So we sang a moment ago, all authority on heaven and in earth is given to him. He's in charge. Colossians tells us that he is preeminent in all things. He is in charge, so we are to place our faith in Christ alone. He is the one who has the ability to actually heal us. But what happens for so many of us is we like to just throw things at our problems and see what sticks. Have you ever done that? Felt like maybe something was wrong and you couldn't uh, put your finger on it. Maybe you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something. But, but you, you feel like you have these problems and, and so you don't know what to do and so you just start throwing things at it. 
Although there is a, a legitimate place for it, sometimes we like to take an illegitimate approach and just throw medication at our problems. Sometimes we like to throw vices at our problems, things like alcohol and drugs, right? Just numb the pain. Sometimes we'll try pleasure. Make ourselves just so happy and just do whatever we want to do. And and when I say pleasure, we immediately think of one thing, but it can also mean escapism. Right? Which is just, I'm just going to do what's fun and not think about the problem. Just make it to the next vacation. I'm going to throw myself into this TV show. Sometimes we try power and knowledge. But the thing about it is that no matter what we throw at our problems, ultimately it doesn't stick. We need more of it. We have to keep throwing more things at our problems. No matter, it's, it's the law of diminishing return. Right? That's why the, the concept, and, and this is a, a kind of a, a buzzword, but it's like the concept of a gateway drug is a real thing. Because you try one and it quits, it quits working. So you have to move up to something else. The same is true with, with pleasure and happiness. What used to satisfy us doesn't anymore. Ultimately, all of it fails. And, and the person who knew this better than anyone was Solomon. He tried it all. He more than trifled with magic and superstition. But what was his conclusion on all of that in Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. All is vanity. It's worthless. Didn't matter. Didn't help. Didn't solve the problem. The only thing that truly mattered was his, his ending of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon, again, the wisest man who ever lived, Scripture tells us, the end of it all is to trust in God. To do what God says. What has God told us to do? To trust and believe wholeheartedly in Christ. This weekend when we were at the uh, the Ark Encounter, uh, one of the gospel presentation illustrations really just drove this point home. Uh, Ray Comfort was doing a presentation and he said, we need to trust in Christ like we would a parachute. Right? Because what's the idea? If you jump out of an airplane, you don't just believe that a parachute exists, but you are trusting it with your life. Because right? you're, you're, it depends on it. If we believe in Jesus, but trust our life and our well-being, and whether or not good or bad things will happen to us, to superstitions and pagan practices, and we haven't truly believed in Christ. We must trust every part of our life to his providence and his plan. Our hope should be in the one that has the ability to change things. And we recognize that Jesus has already shown his ability to do just that when he changed water into wine. At the end of the day, our hope must be in Christ alone. Again, we must stand on him as the solid rock because everything else is sinking sand. It will pull us down and leave us hopeless. But there is hope in Christ. 
Thirdly, I want you to see here a, a heaviness of sinful rules. We see that there's a, a true healing, right? Uh, again, deals with the idea of healing being found in Christ. And there's some people who want to entrust this totally to superstition and magic and those kinds of things. And then there's also another kind of people whose whole trust is in nothing but works and rules. So thirdly, we see the heaviness of sinful rules. The Pharisees here, again, what happens? The man, he gets up, he's walking around. He's got his mat in his hand. This man who had been laying there for 38 years has mat in hand and is walking. Now, if something like that happened, we would like to think we would respond joyfully, right? It would be exciting. It's a miracle. This was not so with the Pharisees. Pharisees here, they immediately begin to say that Jesus' command violates the law. They say, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. He said, the man who healed me, he said, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? The Pharisees here, there's heaviness to their sinful rules. They say that Jesus' command violates the Jewish law. How arrogant can they be? The reality is that the action did not violate God's law since it was God who told the man to do it, but that it violated the Pharisees' man-made laws. It's pretty common knowledge that uh, the Pharisees added hundreds and hundreds of laws to the Old Testament. The Sabbath lets them do nothing under the Pharisee interpretation. Um, instead of being a day of rest and devotion to God, it really became a day of legalism for the Pharisees. And they have even to this modern day a great debate about what they can and cannot do on Sabbath. So much so that uh, recent history, is in the 90s, uh, in Tel Aviv, Israel, there was an apartment that caught on fire. And it's a very orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And so the Jews get together and they uh, basically allow three apartment complexes to burn down while they asked a rabbi if they were allowed to call the fire department. Because the phone call would break an electric current which was considered work. In the half hour it took the rabbi to ponder this question, the fire spread and destroyed the other apartment complexes. Now, we think about that. We say, this is crazy. The idea that nothing could be done on the Sabbath was equally a problem. All right, this is something that Jesus would challenge in a different place with the story of the ox in the ditch. Right? But the, the Pharisees, the idea here and the point that I'm trying to make with you is that the Pharisees multiplied rules about what could and could not be done. They multiplied rule after rule after rule because their whole standing with God and their whole hope of everything good or bad happening in their life was based on rules. If I do this, I'm good. If I don't do this, not good. To this day, when I've had conversations with, uh, with Jewish rabbis, they, they still want to defend this idea. Oh, we put up these fences that keep us from getting close and, and to the edge. And, and what happens, though, is they are throwing these heavy rules that are man-made onto people. 
And it weighed down the Jews, especially in this era. They can't carry a mat. They can't put out a fire. And see, this is the thing equally with, with superstitions and legalism that's so interesting. They create all these rules that we have to constantly follow. Right, again, the, the superstitions, superstitious ones we think about are throwing salt over our shoulder, knocking on wood, which are, again, pagan ideas meant to appease the spirits. But they're rules that we can't keep, right? We can't even keep God's Ten Commandments, let alone the commandments of the world, the commandments of the Pharisees. But what I want to give you here is, is a little thought to think about. Which rules are our attention focused on? When our attention is more on the rules of the world, man-made rules, or the superstitious things, than it is on God's word, we have a problem. If we go out of our way because a cat crossed our path, but won't give attention to the law of God, we have a problem. If we won't call the fire department because it's the Sabbath, a man-made rule, we also have a problem. Whereas the, the Pharisee and the world and, and, and pagan ideas, where their rules are heavy, Christ's yoke is light. The word tells us we are to be known as believers based on whether or not we are following God's commands. And so I just want to give you a a little food for thought again. Whoever we follow and whoever's rules we give attention to, that is ultimately our God. That is where our allegiance lies. And what should have been a moment of joy and praising Christ became a moment of complaining and rebuke. When the whims of man take precedent over the proclamation of God, we always lose joy. Every time. And these moments, again, it, it, we like to think, what would happen if someone who for 38 years had been paralyzed was healed? How would we respond? Again, and I would love to think that we would be joyful, that we would jump up and down, that we would praise Christ for his goodness and his grace. But if we're following the rules of man, or if we're following the, the superstitious things of this world, we will miss out on the joy that comes from following Christ. Fourthly, I want you to see that true healing involves a higher spiritual calling. The Pharisees, they go to this guy, and, and he doesn't know. He was obviously here Jesus told him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, and he obviously did it. Doesn't seem like he looked back or thought about anything else. He picks up his mat, and he's walking, probably shocked that he is doing so. Nowhere in this did he think to find out who Jesus was. So now we we know that Jesus is withdrawn because there was a crowd, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And so after the Pharisees have asked this man, Jesus now finds him in the temple and says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
True healing has a higher spiritual calling. How wonderful was it that a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years was able to walk? Wonderful. It's amazing. But Jesus said there was something more important than even that. First of all, I want, to, I want you to understand that Jesus wasn't saying that the man was paralyzed because he had sinned, right? When he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen. Jesus wasn't saying, like Job's friends, oh, you sinned, that's why you're in this mess. Now, naturally, we recognize that sin can result in sickness, right? There's a lot of places where that happens, right? Illicit sexual activity leads to disease. Drug use leads to serious problems. Alcohol to liver problems. I mean, you go through the, the list. There are many times physical consequences for our sin, but the point was not physical. Jesus was saying, as great as it is that you're healed, see, you're well. But sin no more that nothing worse may happen. Repent. What could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Being trapped in your own body. Your only hope being that someone could somehow pick you up and put you in a pool fast enough. What could be worse than that? An outcast from society left outside the temple. It's an eternity of judgment. Jesus is saying essentially here, now that you are healed physically, sin no more. Be healed spiritually. That you may not fall into eternal judgment. as we begin to think about what Jesus is saying here, we need to recognize that that command to sin no more totally hinges upon Christ alone. We can't repent in our own strength. We cannot save ourselves by our following of rules or by any sort of magical manipulation. The only way that we are saved is through Christ and Christ alone. It's through believing in Jesus as Lord and repenting of sin that the Bible tells us whoever is in Christ is a new creation. It transforms us. By the renewing of our mind, he gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new nature. That we would be different. And so I come before you this morning, the conclusion comes before the final point. The only permanent healing is spiritual. The man paralyzed, healed, he can walk. Guess what? He is dead. Lazarus, brought forth from the grave, but is dead. That nobleman's son, dead. Physical healing is wonderful. But what's more amazing than someone being healed after 38 years of not being able to walk is someone being transformed into a new creation by the grace of Christ. Being made alive by him after being dead in sin. True, permanent healing is spiritual Because when we're healed spiritually, when we're taken from dead in sin and we're made alive, when we're given that new creation and a new nature, that 
doesn't change. We will be kept to the end by his grace. It's permanent. It's true healing. And so if you have a problem this morning, if you have a physical or a mental or emotional problem, amen, pray for healing. But don't miss out on what would be worse, which would be an eternity as an outcast from the city of God. Left outside, hopeless. Our only hope is in Christ alone. So we need to recognize that if we truly want to be healed, there is a higher spiritual calling, a calling to repent of our sins and trust totally in Jesus Christ as Savior. Finally and fifthly, I want to just give you a little insight into the mind of those whose trust is in themselves and in the things of the world. Number five, I want you to see hatred for the Lord of the Sabbath. We see here, starting in verse 16, the man has told the Jews it was Jesus. Verse 16 says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Bible says they wanted to kill him even more. Why? Because he was not bound by man's rules. Humanity has this desire to control everything. We want to be in control, right? And, and if you don't know it, ride, ride along with someone else driving, right? If you don't understand this, just like, we see these things and we know we can, we can fix it, but we're not in control. It drives us crazy. Man hates what he cannot control, which is why sinful people hate the sovereign God. The world hates Christians because true Christians won't conform to the madness of sin. If we follow God and we're following his word, we're not going to give in to the, the delusion that we can all just do whatever we want and follow our own made-up rules. We won't conform to this gender craziness. We won't tolerate abortion. We won't do the things that the world is trying to pull us to. Because our allegiance must be to the Lord of the Sabbath. They were mad because he wasn't doing what they thought he needed to do on the Sabbath. Not recognizing that it was only because of him that they had a Sabbath in the first place. The allegiance must be to Christ alone. Because notice, again, the point really, like they were mad at him when he was just breaking the Sabbath. But they were even more mad and they wanted to kill him because he was God. That was why. God is his father. He's making himself equal with God. And in man's attempt to hate what it cannot control, what we will recognize is that they were successful. They killed him. But in their attempt to stop Jesus 
from breaking their rules, to stop him from freeing people from their control. They were used as an instrument of God's grace to bring about our ultimate freedom from the rule of law, to bring about our freedom from hopelessness. Because when they killed him on the cross, they were again God's instrument Because that death on the cross was what paid the price for our sin. So the world will rebel. The nations will rage. We must recognize that even in their hatred for the Lord, he will accomplish his purpose. Friends, our only hope is not in keeping rules and being good enough. It's not in any sort of magical manipulation or supernatural power. It is in Christ alone. Repent and believe in him. Father, we come before you today. We're thankful that our spiritual healing is not temporary. But that, Lord, nothing can pluck us from your hand. Lord, not even death or or any of the powers of hell can separate us from your love. Lord, when we are healed by your grace, it is a permanent, total, and complete healing. Father, we pray that in this place people would be healed. Lord, not just superficially and physically, but Lord, also in the most important way possible, that Lord, you would raise dead sinners to life. Lord, move in our midst. Show us what we need to do. Reveal your will to us. And Lord, let us be those who would respond. Lord, let us be people who would apply your word to our heart. That we might please you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.